Welcome to the LACNETS podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Yen. I'm the LACNETS Director of Programs and Outreach, as well as a caregiver and advocate for my husband who is living with NET. In each podcast episode, we talk to a NET expert who answers your top 10 questions. This podcast is for educational purposes only and does not constitute medical advice. Please discuss your questions and concerns with your physician. Welcome to the LACNETS podcast. I'm really excited to introduce our special guest for today, Ms. Sina Tusky. Ms. Sina is a registered dietitian who received her bachelor's degree from the University of Wisconsin-Madison in 2006. She completed her internship at the University of Minnesota Medical College Fairview in 2007, and she spent most of her career working with cancer and eating disorder patients. She's practiced in the Twin Cities for 10 years, and she also spent time guest starring on a local TV show called Twin Cities Live to share nutrition advice. And she moved to Milwaukee, where she now works at the Freighter Hospital and the Medical College of Wisconsin since 2018. She sees all patients with cancer, but specializes in GI cancers and neuroendocrine tumor patients. When she's not working, she's a mom to three kids and a Labrador retriever. She loves to cook and bringing people together with food. And thank you for sharing this. I know you mentioned this in your bio, that your youngest son was diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma in 2019. And that cancer journey really gave you a lot of compassion as well as the insight in what cancer means to a family. And we know this is a family disease and it impacts you both professionally and personally. So thank you for that. And congrats on remission for your son, Milo. And we look forward to, you know, hearing more about how this has impacted you personally, professionally. One other fun fact I would like to share that you shared with me, if that's okay. Yeah. Is that you mentioned you love to cook. And I love this fun fact that you have a group of friends that cook through an entire cookbook together. And you worked through five and now you're working on your sixth cookbook. And you cook every single recipe, even though it might be something you might not normally eat. So that just shows a lot of dedication, commitment, and thoroughness. So how fun is that? It is fun. We've had some that you don't think you'd like that you end up liking and some that you didn't think you'd like and you still don't like. (laughs) So you've learned a lot through that experience. Yes. (laughs) So Sina, I know you and I met at the 2023 Nanette Symposium in Montreal, and I was really excited to connect with another net nutritionist who is knowledgeable and passionate about net since this is an area of great need in the community and you and I have talked about this and how often these questions come up. So I'm really excited to welcome you today. I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for being here. And I'd like to hear from you, first of all, how you got involved in the NET community. You know, I can't say it was necessarily planned out. I started in oncology and over time started to work with more providers that worked with mostly surgeons that worked in GI operations. And within that, we have a few different surgeons. We have a dietitian that does more of our adenocarcinomas. And the surgeon that I work with does more of the NET resection. So from there, we talk a lot about it's a really specialized area. There's a lot of nutrition issues, a lot of bowel issues. So I've started reading more, researching more and going to the conferences. And slowly over time, I take those patients now because I feel really passionate. And I feel like I really understand a lot of the common questions and what people have gone through. So it evolved over time. Mm, Wow. Well, grateful for you evolving and learning and growing and being interested in this. And I'm curious, you mentioned that this has impacted you personally with your son. And I'm wondering maybe an insight or something that you learned from your personal journey that impacts your professional journey. 
Yeah, that's a great question. I think one big thing is just being able to connect with patients. I think you're in the room and there's multiple providers that are going in and I'm going in to talk about the importance of eating. And I think patients often know the importance of eating, but there's a trust level when I can share with them. I have been through this and I understand it's really hard. I want to give you some tips that have worked for me. I also learned so many more creative ways to make protein shakes and to hide protein because my son absolutely hated the prepackaged drinks. So I had to get very creative. Yeah, creativity. And I think especially with kids, it's challenging. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's really helpful that you get it. I know many people in the neuroendocrine cancer community feel alone and isolated. So we really appreciate your understanding, your empathy, and your commitment. Yeah, I'm happy to help anyone we can. Well, with that, how about we jump into the 10 questions? Perfect. Well, the first question, very common. I'm sure you hear this every day. What diet should net patients be on and what foods might they avoid? a great question. It's kind of multifactorial here too. So let's talk through a patient that's feeling really good, is not having issues eating or with appetite. I would suggest for those patients that they work on a healthy diet that's richer in fruits and vegetables, trying to get a lot of beans in. Beans are high in antioxidants. I would really focus on lean protein. So our bodies need a lot of protein, but we want to limit the protein that's from processed meats or red meat. So like pork, beef, lamb, even salami, hot dogs are all processed. The American Institute of Cancer Research now gave us a number. So we're trying to limit the red meat to 12 to 18 ounces a day. That being said, there's a really large population of people with nets that struggle with maybe looser stools or lack of appetite. And in those situations, the diet looks different. But really common things I tell my patients is nutrition is a phase and you might be in a different phase from somebody else and that's okay. A healthy diet when you're feeling good is great. But if you're not feeling good, you have to eat to maintain your weight and to avoid malnutrition that might not look like a salad. That might be macaroni and cheese. You know, if you're having a lot of diarrhea, we'll talk about that um, in one of our questions coming up, but we wouldn't want to eat all those gas-forming foods. For net patients specifically, I would say that if you have some issues with food, the, the main three things people can complain about are spicy foods, foods that are high in fat, and foods that have a high amount of amines, which is a category of food that's fermented. It's aged cheeses, it's alcohol, caffeine, and it's really important to work with somebody, whether it's a dietitian, a nurse practitioner, or an organization, or even honestly, if you don't have those available to you and you can work in a support group, to try to track out what those foods might be that trigger your gut to not feel as good. I'm glad you mentioned that. That was actually something I was going to ask. We hear people mentioning there are certain trigger foods to avoid. So does that mean all people are triggered, for example, by amines that you mentioned or spicy foods? And how do I know and what can I eat? Great question. Trigger, you'll hear that word a lot. It basically just means that that food is causing some GI distress. So a trigger food might cause abdominal discomfort or pain. It might cause burning in your intestines. It could cause diarrhea or just a feeling of bloating and discomfort. So if you're not having those problems, if you eat and your GI tract feels normal, you probably don't have any trigger foods. If you start to notice that that happens to you sometimes, but not every day, then it could be that a certain category of food is bothering you. But we have patients that can eat all those foods, the high fat, the spicy foods, and the amine foods. So it's more personally what happens to you. So I would say if you notice you have any GI issues, 
I always recommend a food log that has bowel log with it. So if you're kind of like, God, I just don't feel good. I don't know if it's from my neuroendocrine tumor. You can just record really briefly on a scratch piece of paper. It doesn't have to be on a fancy app what you ate and what symptoms you have and start to notice what would be there that could have caused those issues. It has to be individualized. Absolutely. That's helpful because sometimes, you know, we see in a support group or on Facebook groups that many people are saying, I can't eat this, I can't eat this. And it's easy to wonder, is this also affecting me? And should I be avoiding all these things everyone else is talking about? Yeah, I would wait and know that you're different. Everybody's different. There's no perfect diet for everybody. It's like us being zebras, right? Each person is different and each stripe is different. Yeah, I will say like as a general neuroendocrine tumor, not having really large meals can be really helpful. The larger the meal, the more food that's in your intestine at a time, the more stimulation of hormones. So you'll have a less chance of having symptoms and side effects if you stick to small meals more frequently. But again, that's not a certain food. That's just a general way of eating. Mm-hmm. Helpful for the general population and even more so with neuroendocrine tumor. Right. Really, anybody benefits from that. But what you're saying with hormone secretion, there's especially a reason. Well, the next question is, well, you mentioned surgery and working with a surgeon. What diet should people be on after bowel surgery? Yeah, great question. I'm going to tell you what we do at our facility, but I know some surgeons have individualized things that they do. So if this sounds different than what your surgeon says, definitely listen to your surgeon. At our hospital, we recommend low fiber for two weeks up to six weeks. Your recovery path really can be six full weeks. Your body will need extra protein and a lot of calories. So it's important to eat enough food, but really eliminating the fiber is really important. So anytime they're reconnecting two areas of your gut, you're really sewing two new things together. So think of having like a scratch on your hand. Fiber has to go back and forth in your gut to break down while healthy with a healthy gut. When we all of a sudden have a stitched area or like I'm picturing a scratch on my hand, I tell my patients having fiber is like itching your scratch. It's going to heal, but it's going to take a lot longer to heal because you're itching it. So we just avoid that. I tell people you're giving your bowel a vacation for two weeks. So the most important fibers to avoid are the insoluble fibers, so skins of fruits and vegetables. You could peel an apple and have it, but we won't want to have the apple skin. We won't want to have all the berries, but you can have some soluble fiber. So you're okay to have bananas. You're okay to have a little oatmeal, even potatoes, but we won't want to have the skin of that. Oh, wow. Thanks for that clarification and that metaphor of the scratch and itching the scratch. So you mentioned this specifically with bowel surgery. What's included with bowel surgery? Would pancreas surgery be included in this? Yeah, absolutely. That's a great question. And actually your pancreas, if you have part of that resectant, there's even more to your diet. So for patients that have just part of their intestines resected, where we have to worry about low fiber. If you have part of your pancreas resected as well, now we want to give a true vacation not only to your intestines, but to your pancreas. So we recommend a low-fat, low-fiber diet for that. Your pancreas secretes all the enzymes to digest fat. So again, if we're eating fatty foods, it's just going to make your pancreas work so hard. And you know, if you have surgery, you don't get up and work hard and clean the kitchen. You relax. So we're trying to let our pancreas relax a little bit. And would that be similar six weeks as you mentioned with the bowel? Yeah, we say two to six. Some patients do great. And within two weeks, they're functioning well. They have no discomfort or bloating. Their bowel pattern is normal and they can start adding in some fiber or fat. Or if after surgery or losing a lot of weight, we might add in some fat sooner. But usually by six weeks, everybody's back on a regular diet. Mm. So this may be evolving process. 
Again, individualized. Individualized. Another common question that comes up, what vitamin supplements should net patients take? We get that question a lot. It's an interesting question because vitamins also have herbal supplements kind of in there too. So I want to talk about both a little separately. So herbal supplements like turmeric or other single nutrient pieces, we don't really recommend taking during active treatment. A lot of those herbals are high antioxidant products. And if you're getting any sort of treatment for your tumor, those antioxidants job is to protect a cell. But they can't tell if it's a cancer cell or a healthy cell. So they're really trying to protect all the cells. And when we're getting treatment, we're trying not to necessarily protect the cell. We want them to be vulnerable. So I don't recommend herbal supplements in that stage. If you are a survivor, you're not getting treatment and long term, you want to take one. We just recommend running it by a pharmacist to make sure it doesn't interact with any of your other drugs. In terms of vitamins, a multivitamin is truthfully an insurance policy. I don't have problems when patients take them. I don't think people need to take them either. So that is a personal preference. If you were looking for what specific nutrients should I take, the two that I would single out would be vitamin D. Vitamin D is a fat-soluble vitamin. So patients that have any malabsorption or you're on pancreatic enzymes or you have a lot of diarrhea, you tend to not absorb all your fat. Well, if you're not absorbing your fat, your vitamin D is in that fat. So that's a very easy lab that they can check. And then you can supplement that if you need extra. Otherwise, you could take 2,000 units of that a day. The last one that's kind of unique to NETS is niacin. So niacin is a B vitamin. And the pathway that is created is affected by neuroendocrine tumors. So you're at a higher risk to be deficient in that. Niacin, since it's a water-soluble vitamin, we can pee it out as well. So some patients will just take a B-complex. That's a safe choice to do. Other patients will want to have their niacin checked. And if it's depleted, they could take a little bit more. Yeah, that's helpful. So the comment that you made about antioxidants, I know that that's something that kind of don't think about. Oh, yeah, we want there to be antioxidants in our body, but it is counter to what we're trying to do during treatment when we're trying to kill the tumor cells. It is interesting because then I've had patients say to me, well, should I not eat foods high in antioxidants? No, you absolutely can eat foods high in antioxidants. There is a different absorption. They call it like a synergy, meaning it all works together. So when you eat a blueberry high in antioxidants, it also has fiber and skin and all these other things, all these other vitamins in it as well, that we absorb it and it is used as an antioxidant, but it's used as many things. It's when we just choose to take one little piece of a food out and make it in a large quantity and put in a pill. That's what we worry about. I see. So... Avoiding certain supplements or many supplements during active treatment, the multivitamins and the insurance policy, vitamin D seems pretty practical and common. And then with the niacin, would a multivitamin be okay with that or do they really need to take a B complex? Most multivitamins these days have a really high percentage of B vitamins. You can actually turn your vitamin over and look at the label. You don't have to know what all the numbers mean. But if you see that the B vitamins are at or over 100%, then you would not need a B complex. And which specific B vitamins are we looking for with the niacin? Yeah, niacin's B3. And okay. then another common one, if you're a vegetarian, you could be deficient in B12. Yeah, B3 and B12, that's helpful to know. And for vegetarians, is there a certain amount of B12 that someone should be taking? 
It depends on female or male and your age. Again, the beauty of a multivitamin is they're going off an adult diet. So it's a water-soluble vitamin. A lot of people get extra. Some patients, depending on if you've had a surgery again, will get shots of B vitamins. If part of your stomach was removed, you won't absorb it all the way. Or some people will take a sublingual so it goes on your tongue and absorbs right in. And most of those are 1,200. Mm. That's helpful to know. There's all these different B vitamins out there. So thanks for bringing clarity to that. The vitamin D, you mentioned getting a blood test. I was just wondering if there's a particular level that you're looking for. That's a great question. It's a little different depending on what lab is resulting your blood. So definitely go by the parameters of your hospital. Like the American Cancer Association usually says 30 or above, but I know the way we assess it, I don't know how they use the blood. But however they do our blood, ours is a little different range. So if you get it, you have it on my chart, you want it to be in the range that your hospital has set up. We get most of our vitamin D from the sun. So I live in Wisconsin and I always tell people it's pretty high risk that you're going to be deficient and it's easy to replace. Yeah, I know that's a common issue just generally, uh, much less for cancer patients. Yeah. Well, thank you for clarifying this complex topic and something that is very common. So you also brought up diarrhea and another very big topic and area of concern. What can that patients do about diarrhea? Is there a certain diet or medications that might help? That's a great question too. That's the biggest thing we work on with our net patients, to be honest. There's so many types of diarrhea. So the first thing we try to uncover is why are you having diarrhea? So one of the versions we talked about briefly is somebody who might have had their pancreas removed or has pancreatic neuroendocrine tumor may have a deficiency in the enzymes to digest food. So the pancreas secretes enzymes. And if it doesn't get enough, you'd have diarrhea. You'd have more than three stools a day. They would look possibly like you put drizzled olive oil in the toilet. They'd be foul smelling. I mean, we talk about pooping all day at work. I tell people I know poop doesn't smell good, but it's a specific foul smell. They float. They just look a little different. So we can tell a lot by how stools are formed. So if you go in and you're having diarrhea, expect to be asked a lot of questions about how they look. If that were the case, we would start somebody on pancreatic enzymes. So you would take a pill, kind of like you may have known somebody who takes a lactate pill who's lactose intolerant. You would take that pill at the beginning of a meal. We'll talk about that in a little bit as well. So that's kind of fat malabsorption. The fancy word for that, if you've heard it, is steatorrhea. That just means I'm not absorbing fat. I don't have the enzymes. Your pancreas secretes hundreds of thousands of enzymes per meal. So you're taking a pill just to supplement it. Your pancreas is still secreting some. Another type of diarrhea is called carcinoid syndrome. And a lot of patients have this. So that kind of diarrhea tends to be more watery. And it can wake you up in the middle of the night to have to go. It's very frequent. If you're having issues with that, there are some medications you can take for that, but it's really doctor dependent. We would definitely do a diet recall. We'd want to probably separate out some of the liquids from meals. So if you can eat a meal and not drink a ton of water with it to increase the transit time of our gut just goes faster when there's a lot of fluid there. Those patients we work with really specifically on how we can manage their carcinoid syndrome. Then there's also people that have diarrhea from too much secretions and hormones. And again, sometimes people take some medications for that. Sometimes we try to work on lowering the amines again for that, that kind of diarrhea. And then there's another diarrhea people get from bile acid. So if you've had your gallbladder resected, so it's a very layered way to manage it. But in general, if it's the pancreas, it's a little bit easier to give medicine. The other kinds, in general, we kind of separate the liquids. We try to limit fiber, especially that insoluble fiber. So insoluble, peels, skins, whole grains. 
we actually encourage soluble fiber that kind of bulks up your stool. So the main soluble fibers are potatoes, bananas, oatmeal. We would have people try to eat some of those as well. Yeah. So it sounds like really it depends on what the cause is. Yes. There's a lot of causes. Honestly, sometimes I feel like I am playing a board game because we have to uncover. And a lot of people have multiple causes. You may have a little bit of two different kinds. Yeah. And again, each person is not all the same. Diarrhea is a big piece of quality of life. So definitely, definitely talk to your provider. If you're having more than four or five bowel movements a day, that's something that dietitians or your practitioner can try to help you with. We always tell our patients, if you can have one to two formed, dark sinking bowel movement a day, we're doing awesome. If you're at eight to 10 and we can get you down to four, we're doing better. Yeah, it really impacts quality of life. So understanding the cause will help guide the treatment plan and diet. Yep. And so... What about people who struggle with a poor appetite? This is common, especially for various reasons, going through surgery or treatments. Yeah. You know, a lot of things cause poor appetite. Even mood, you know, taste changes, nausea, diarrhea will make you eat less. Again, we work with patients specifically on why they're having it. But some of the general things we recommend are those small frequent meals. So trying to snack on something every two hours. I remind my patients all the time, you cannot trust your appetite when you don't have an appetite. It's not working properly. So you can't wait to feel hungry to eat. We recommend for our patients that they set an alarm. So if you eat at eight o'clock, you can do every two hours. So every time it's an even number, eight, 10, 12, two, four, you should have something to eat. That sounds like a lot whenever I tell it to patients, but I remind them something to eat could be a small yogurt. It could be a string cheese, but we're trying to just get a little bit of food in throughout the entire day. This is one that I learned when my son was sick. You're more apt to eat it if you see it and if it's easy. Even the difference of having a big bag of pretzel, having to get a bowl, pour the pretzels in it versus having a grab and go pretzel. So I tell my patients all the time, you should make a basket of little snacks that they kind of create for kids that are going to school and put it on the counter. So if you're sitting watching TV, you can put it right by your table by the TV. You're more apt to grab something out of that because it's in front of you and you're seeing it. Now, a lot of snacks are in the fridge, but it's a reminder. So even getting individual yogurt containers instead of a tub of yogurt, make eating as easy as possibly can. Make it easy. I know for family members, and perhaps you went through this too with your son, it can be concerning, like, how do I make sure I don't turn off my family member from food or make it a negative thing or make it stressful? We don't want to turn it into a fight or a battle, right? We don't want to have negative connotations. Absolutely. I think it's important they know it's out of love, but I always tell my patients, this is where we use an alarm. I'll say to patients, you have a choice. Do you want your family member to remind you? Or if that really bothers you, then you can use an alarm because some patients want the family, but some patients, it just irks them to have somebody reminding them all the time. When my son was sick, I told him, I know you're not hungry, but your body has to have the energy. He understood it as his army. I was like, your body's army needs nutrition so that it can keep fighting. So what would be the easiest thing you could eat right now? And we worked on it like baby steps, truthfully. Yeah, that's helpful. A related question is, and this probably goes hand in hand, what can net patients do if they're struggling to keep on or gain weight? You know, we didn't talk about it in the last questions, but a lot of those pre-prepared protein shakes can be great. I also really like trying to think of ways, if you're not keeping on weight and you're not hungry, how can we add more calories to the food you're already eating? I say to my patients, it's unrealistic for me to tell you to eat more meals when you're not hungry. So what can we do? Let's give an example. You eat scrambled eggs for breakfast. 
Well, we can scramble them with whole milk or even half and half. We can put a little butter in the pan when you cook them and we can add cheese on top. We could put avocado on top. So all of a sudden the volume of what you ate didn't change, but the calories changed. Let's say you make hot cereal. I tell my patients they should make it with milk, not water. I recommend using high protein milk. So there's some good high protein milk on the market where you can get 13 grams per cup. You can mix that in. You could add peanut butter into your hot cereal and it'll all blend in by the time you heat it up. Mm. Now, what about concerns about high fat? Right. So our patients on pancreatic enzymes, we always remind them that if you're adding more fat, you're going to need more enzymes. So you can eat more fat. You just have to give your body the tools to do that. So you can work with your dietitian on that. The other thing you could do if you're trying to get calories from fat, but you have some intolerance to high fat foods, is you can use MCT oil. So MCT oil is a medium chain triglyceride, fancy word, but it just means that it's not stimulating your pancreas when you absorb it. So you can use MCT oil without needing more enzymes. Most people add like a tablespoon to what they're eating and you can add it little by little. You can do it at breakfast and breakfast, lunch, and you can go up to three times a day. It's a hundred calories per tablespoon too. And again, those smoothies and shakes, there are some that go up to 530 calories. There's a boost to very high calorie there's a Kate Farms at 1.4 that's in the 400s. Some of the insurers are in the 300s. Those are great. We'll see on a busy day. You'll see a lot of clinic appointments. You should bring food with you. If you have no appetite, if you're losing weight, one day of not eating puts you way behind. Yeah, those tips and tricks of carrying it with you, hiding some of the calories like using full fat milk and such, that's helpful. I'm sure you get asked this and you mentioned a couple brands. Do you have a favorite protein shake I do. I always tell my patients, I'm like, well, you can make my son's favorite shake. So there's a big difference in taste from whey protein to pea plant protein. Some patients are fine with it. Some of my family actually eat either. And then patients that are a little bit more sensitive to taste, I have found tend to do a little bit better with pea plant protein. It's a little less chalky. It's a little lower in protein. So you're going to get 20 grams instead of 30. My son was lactose intolerant. So we would do a frozen banana, but you could clearly do ice cream. And I would do that high protein milk. We use like a fair life whole milk. And then I would do a heaping scoop of peanut butter. I would do a pea plant protein and spinach and I'd blend it. And I told my son it was a Hulk because it turned green. So it was our Hulk smoothie. Oh, I love that. So even though it's green, you turn it into a positive thing. You know, I think I added it once. It's close to 600 calories. My kids still eat it. It's really high in protein because you're getting protein from the milk, from the peanut butter, from the protein powder. And when you're not hungry, it's easier to drink something than it is to sit down and eat. The effort that goes into eating, we don't realize because we feel good. But you have to cut it and chew it and heat it up. And it's a process. Mm. How often would you feed it to your son? I mean, I try to do it every day, but we usually did it every other day. Or he would be able to do it every day and drink half. Any sip counts. I love that you mentioned ice cream, which I love. That's like my favorite food. What kind of ice cream would you put in there? We just said vanilla, nothing fancy. But there's so many ways to blend. If you're sensitive to fat, you could use a sherbet and blend that with even an insure or milk or a fruit smoothie. You can add a bunch of calories to. You can blend in avocados. You can blend in MCT oil. You can blend in hemp seeds if you don't have issues of fiber. There's a lot of ways to make an eight ounce smoothie really concentrated. Yeah, well, I'm going to write down this recipe. The whole, the whole, <laughs> yeah. And you mentioned that you hide protein or you were in the practice of hiding protein for your son. Yeah. And so that was one of the methods you would do. 
yeah, the protein powder, I put in energy bites as well. I don't know if people listeners have had energy bites before. There's so many different ways to make them. It's usually like a nut butter. I would do protein powder. I would do like oats in it, maybe some chocolate chips to get them to like it. And I had peanut butter and a lot of things. What about for people who are allergic to peanuts? Yeah, that's a great question. Any nut butter would work. So you could even do a sun butter and almond butter. Cashew butter is actually really smooth. Okay. So the smoothies, the Hulk recipe, the energy bites, and then adding avocado, ice cream, whole milk, any of those. Yep. Some fun little tips. What about hydration? What can knit patients do to stay hydrated? This especially comes up maybe with certain treatments like PRT, Lutathera, mm-hmm. things like that, or after surgery. So what do you recommend? First of all, this one sounds obvious, but bring a water bottle with you wherever you go, right? We're going to drink it if we have it. If we don't have it, we can't even start drinking it. A while back, there was somebody that did some research on the fact that people drink more fluids if they have a straw. So if you really struggle, get a cup, get a water bottle with a straw, or some of those like Camelback pressurized ones where it kind of shoots the water. So people end up drinking a little bit more each time. Also, if water doesn't sound good, any fluid counts popsicles count, watermelon count, soup counts as a fluid. Electrolyte drinks can be helpful, but some are kind of high in sugar. Really high sugar might not feel great on your gut either. A Pedialyte works well, or like a Propel that's lower in sugar. Some people will mix a little juice and dilute it with water just to give it more flavor. They also make really nice water bottles these days that are like Have you ever seen people carrying around those half liter water bottles? I mean, if you want, you could put it all in one cup. Otherwise, I tell people 64 ounces is what you should aim for. If you're having diarrhea, you really need more than that. Yeah, that tip about it doesn't have to be liquid fluid, that it can be popsicles. I know when people are having diarrhea, not feeling well, popsicles can help. And Pedialyte and some things like that come in popsicles. They do. And they come in like powdered tubes now, which I prefer because I think sometimes those electrolyte drinks are a little too concentrated, but you can dilute it. I've seen those popsicles. I haven't tried them yet. They come in different flavors. Helpful for kids. Right. What about the pancreatic enzymes? Let's kind of circle back to that because we kind of had a little teaser about that. And that is a common thing that people may be trying. What are pancreatic enzymes and how are they taken? That's a great question because it is kind of specific. So the enzymes in a pancreatic enzyme are amylase and lipase. So they digest carbohydrates and fat. They're dosed based on the amount of lipase in them. Just means how much fat. So I remind our patients, we have a really nice frequently asked questions about pancreatic enzymes. You are dosing it based on how much fat is in your meal. So you could have a huge meal that has no fat. That doesn't mean you need more pancreatic enzymes. Most of our patients will get to the point that they know maybe I need one at breakfast, two at lunch, two at dinner because my lunch and dinner are bigger. And most patients I tell too, if you know your standard is two, then you should think about on a holiday or going out to eat, you likely need one more. So something where the fat content's higher, a birthday party, you're having cake. So once you figure out the amount you need, the way we recommend taking it is with the first bite of food, you can swallow the pill. Now, some patients will kind of complain that they actually feel a little bit more gassy when they take it. If that's the case, we tell our patients that you can actually open the capsule. So pancreatic enzymes are a capsule pill that looks like other pills, but inside of it are little beads. And the beads are the enzymes. We don't ever want to pop those beads or chew them in our mouth. They can cause some mouth sores and we need to get them down to our intestine in the little balls. So we have patients like pour the beads onto applesauce and then you can take it in a bite of applesauce as well. We can't do it with pudding or yogurt because we want the pH of the applesauce because those little beads are actually coated so they don't break down in your stomach. We want them to work in your intestine. So you can take it with applesauce, you can take it with fluids at the first bite of your meal. 
If you take more than one at a meal, maybe you take two or three, we recommend at our facility trying to stagger it. So maybe you take two at the first bite of your meal and one in the middle of your meal to kind of have them last a little bit longer. Yeah, that's helpful, especially long meals, holidays, birthday parties, things like that. And it's a rare occasion, but there's a few different brands of pancreatic enzymes. We have some people that their symptoms actually worsen when they start them. And if that happens, you can try the other brand. So do you have a preferred brand or type of pancreatic enzyme? That's a great question. Really, it depends on your coverage. We use Creon and Zenpep a lot at our hospitals, but they can be really expensive. So whatever is covered by your insurance, I would start with. There's a lot of different versions of it. What about over-the-counter pancreatic enzymes that people might find at a grocery store or on Amazon? There is a brand on Amazon we've had patients use that don't have great coverage. I always recommend doing the prescription version first because that's being regulated. We know the monoenzymes they're saying are actually in there. It can be a great option, though, if you're not getting coverage. But you want to go through your provider if you're on pancreatic enzymes. Again, you're not going to digest fat the same, so you're at risk for some deficiencies in vitamins. And there's other things that need to be monitored if you're taking them. The monitoring is important. So you mentioned monitoring vitamins. What other things would need to be monitored? That's probably the biggest. Hydration would be one, because if you're going on them, you're having a lot of diarrhea. So you could also have hydration or electrolyte issues. You know, long term, they wouldn't have to keep checking that. Those are probably the main things that we monitor right away. And perhaps a basic question, who should be taking it? The title is pancreatic enzymes. Is it only for pancreatic net patients? It's for anybody whose pancreas is not working properly to secrete those enzymes. It's more patients that have pancreatic diagnoses, but it can be common for people that are on lanreotide shot. So people that take those shots, it can, for the first six days after, decrease the effectiveness of those enzymes. So we also have patients that will just take it for six days after their shot. How you would know you need it. If you are having lighter colored stools that float that are loose, that are more than three times a day, that look like they have oil in them, that have that foul smell. So if you're checking off multiple symptoms, you're really gassy after you eat and it's worse with a high fat meal. Those are all symptoms that you're deficient or could be deficient and that's when you would wanna try them. Oh, that's helpful because there are patients who say, I did fine after my bowel surgery and then my doctor started me on these monthly shots called somatostatin analog and then I started having diarrhea. And that's usually temporary. So then this diarrhea might be related to the shots. Correct. Mostly if it's just for like a week after the shot. Okay. And then you're saying the pancreatic enzymes might help with that. Yeah. I have two trains of thought. Some patients just try not to eat a lot of fat those first six days after the shot. Some patients try the enzymes. Either would work. You mentioned six days. What about the rest of the month? Should I be taking it the rest of the month if this is an issue? If it's related to the shot, you won't. Your pancreas shouldn't function well with the enzyme secretion. Now, if you were a person that's having extreme fat malabsorption, you would. But that wouldn't be from the shot. You probably would have started that separate. And I'm wondering also, is this related at all to the gallbladder? Should I take them if I have or haven't had my gallbladder out? Nope, it's unrelated. If you have your gallbladder removed, yes, that also can affect fat and high fat meals might not go well. But pancreatic enzymes would not help that. Okay, thanks for clarifying. Yeah, great questions. So we talked about a little bit about vegetarian or vegan diets, and this comes up quite a lot. I know people are concerned about what they're taking in for various reasons. So if someone is vegetarian or vegan, what proteins can they take given that soy might be a trigger for carcinoid syndrome? 
And soy can be a trigger because it has amines in it. You know, we think of soy that also goes for miso and tempeh and edamame, right? So now we're pushing those out. So for vegetarians, dairy can be a great option. Greek yogurt, again, a high protein milk could work. Eggs, if you eat eggs, some vegetarians will eat fish. That would be another great one. If you're vegan or you want more of the full plant-based protein, you could do chickpeas or hummus, quinoa, beans, legumes, nuts, seeds. And how do I make sure I get enough protein? That's a great question too. It can be helpful for some patients, mostly a vegetarian, for a day to track what they ate and put it in an app and see what the protein intake is. Your protein needs will change depending on where you are with your diagnoses. That's a great thing that a dietitian at your facility can help you with. Even if they're not specialized in neuroendocrine tumor, all dietitians can figure out your protein. That's helpful. So even if we don't have you at our institution, yes. have someone else. Yeah, we calculate if you eat meat, it's a little bit easier. If you do protein shakes, it also helps too. And so there's a certain protein requirement that each person should be attentive to. Yeah. It's higher, you know, we recommend a little bit more before surgery and a little bit more after surgery. Some treatments need a little bit more as well. And one final common question is, what do you think of alternative diets like the keto diet, other special diets? And I think a somewhat related question that comes up is this concept of the sugar feed cancer. That is my number one question I get at work from all patients. Yeah. Let's start with keto and then we'll go to sugar. How's that sound? The keto diet is becoming more popular or researched in the oncology field. It's been used in other areas in the past in children. But a keto diet is a high-fat, low-carb, low-protein diet. The research that's out there right now is mainly done on animals. So there's nothing currently saying that we can consistently tell people we recommend them doing it. If you were to be interested in being on a keto diet, it's definitely something you'd want to work with your team on. Basically, your body uses glucose as your energy source. And if you're on a keto diet, we really cut out glucose so that your body uses a different form of energy called ketones. But you have to monitor that because ketosis or when your body's using ketones, there can be some other side effects as well. We give patients the resources and go through what that looks like for them if they're interested. And a lot of times I think what patients realize is they hear about a keto diet, but what a lot of people are doing is like a modified Atkins where it's low carb, like 25 grams of carb, but keto is like 10 grams of carb. It's really, really minimal. And the number one reason we would tell someone not to do it is they're malnourished or they're at risk of malnutrition. That is a bigger risk factor and a reason not to be on that diet. So we give the information. It's not something that I recommend currently. The other one I'll just quick say before we even mention sugar is another area that's being researched a lot right now in cancer is intermittent fasting. Have you ever heard of that one? Mm -hmm. This comes up a lot. Some people have heard of it and some people haven't. So intermittent fasting means you're going to give your body an extended period of time not to eat, to fast. Fasting can be defined as 12 hours. It could be defined up to 16 hours. And some fasting is multiple days. Intermittent fasting means you're going 12 to 16 hours every day without eating. So if you ate your last meal at 7 p.m., you wouldn't eat again till 7 in the morning or even hours after that. A lot of the research within the cancer field is trying to prove if that would help reduce the side effects of chemotherapy. And there are a lot of research studies out there right now. And I can't really say where it lies in terms of should everybody do it or not. But what I will say is... If it doesn't make you feel sick from not eating that long and you're not losing weight and you're able to eat enough of the nutrition that you need and maintain your weight, it is something you can do safely. You know, I usually recommend 12 to 14 hours, but it is not something that everybody has to do. 
So it's a possibility, but there are certain circumstances that it's not something that people should do, but you probably would recommend against it too. Yeah. And I think mostly if you're not feeling well, we worry more about becoming malnourished. You're healing slower. It's harder to go into surgery. That's a bigger risk factor than choosing to eat carbohydrates, eat more frequently. That's a really good point. Malnutrition is a huge thing and it can really lead to not just poor quality of life, but other complications and issues. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about sugar. (laughs) Bring it on. Yeah. You know, you Google this question, you can get a thousand articles on it. So I think that's the hard piece with sugar. Sugar is glucose. Glucose is energy. So basically, if we link it, carbohydrates have glucose as well, fruit. It's a certain form that our cells can use really easily. Do we need to eat sugar to stay alive? No, sugar is not an essential nutrient, so you do not need it. The bottom line I tell my patients here is, should sugar be feared? No. Sugar is still an energy source, and our body can't distinguish if it's feeding a cancer cell or a healthy cell. The bigger thing would be eating a meal that's really high in just sugar. Like let's say you went and had a jumbo pack of Skittles. That is absorbed immediately. And in doing that, it triggers more cell production. And that's what people with cancer can fear, right? We don't want more cells produced of the cells we don't like. So if you're going to eat some sugar, but you eat it with protein or fat or fiber, all of a sudden your body has to do a little work to break it down before you can absorb it. So it's not going to trigger as big of a blood sugar increase and as big of a cell growth stimulation as eating it by itself. So I tell my patients, sugar does not feed cancer. Sugar feeds every cell in your body. Do you need to eat it? No. Should you be scared of it? No. If you have some in moderation, that is fine. Maybe things don't taste good and all that sounds good as a milkshake. I would want you to eat the milkshake versus not eating dinner. So some desserts might be okay. Yep. Dessert in moderation is fine. That's really helpful to really understand that sugar is not to be feared and that by taking in some sugar in whatever form, I'm not hurting myself if I have cancer. Mm -hmm. So it's not causing it to grow. Is that what you're saying? Correct. I mean, if you just ate sugar on repeat, sugar, sugar, sugar all day, you are stimulating a lot of cell production, but nobody sits and just eats sugar all day, every meal, every single thing they do. Most of the things we eat are complex. They have carbs, protein, fat other things in them. Yeah. So if I'm opting to have something sweet, having something more complex. Yeah. And not to be fearing that, especially when there's other concerns like malnutrition and and such, if I'm working towards that. Right. And I give this example all the time. I talked in the beginning about phases of nutrition. Healing from surgery, going through chemotherapy or any treatment is a phase. That diet might look very different than when you're healthy. My son, when he was sick, would not eat breakfast. He wasn't hungry. Nothing sounded good. All that he would eat is a donut. So he had a donut almost every single day because the other option was he loses weight and becomes malnourished. But we were in this phase of survival. Now he's healthy. I rarely get him a donut. That's not a healthy breakfast choice. That's not the phase we are in, right? He can have something else from the kitchen. So I remind people this isn't a forever diet if that's all that sounds good then that might be what you need to do for now. That is so helpful. I think especially as adults, we might have these preconceptions and rightfully so of what's healthy and not. So we all know we shouldn't be eating right every single day. (laughs) It's true. (laughs) But there are some instances you might feed a donut every single day. Calories. Sometimes you just need calories. I know when my husband was recovering from his surgery and he was anemic, And we were trying to get up his energy level and bacon sounded good to him. Because again, his body is telling him right then that is what his body needs. You probably won't eat bacon every day now. 
And let me ask you about this. He told me certain foods he associates with recovery from surgery or treatment. So I don't know if there's a way to balance that. So it's not a negative association. A lot of patients look at them and treat me like, I can never have a protein shake again. It's important to have a variety. Try multiple different things, mostly if your taste is off. You might have never liked lemon, but all of a sudden lemon works for you. So to be open to that. And also if something you finish and you recovered and that is just an off food for you, that's also okay. That's also okay. Yeah. I know some people have mentioned that with pregnancy. That's the food that they associate with being pregnant. <laughs> never again. Never again. Okay. <laughs> well, I guess in closing, what final words of hope or insights might you like to share with the net patient community? Yeah, I would just say stick with it and advocate for yourself. You know, if something doesn't feel right, reach out. It could be to your team. It could be to friends. It could be to like a neuroendocrine support group. But advocate for yourself and don't give up. And give yourself some grace, right? Nobody eats a perfect diet. There's no such thing. Yeah, giving yourself grace. I appreciate you talking about different phases. That there's not just a one size fit all, but also not one season, right? That it changes. And I really appreciate the clear way you have explained everything. This is a really challenging topic because of all the nuances and all the ever-changing everything. Yes. What's out there, what's going on in our own lives. I really appreciate you explaining things so clearly. Yeah. This was so fun. Thank you for having me. I'm glad I could help. Thank you so much. We really appreciate all you do clinically, professionally, personally with your family as well, and for you sharing those insights with us. And we look forward to connecting again in the future. Wonderful. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the LACNETS podcast. Go to our website, lacnets.org forward slash podcast for episode transcripts and resources. We want to thank our podcast supporters, Ibsen, ITM, Advanced Accelerator Applications, Crenetics, and Tercera Therapeutics. For more information about neuroendocrine cancer, go to www.lacnets.org. LACNETS depends on donations to bring you programs such as this podcast. Please consider making a donation at lacnets.org forward slash donate.